This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. And welcome, one and all, to the Audio Imaginarium. And first order of business, of course, Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And especially to my mom back in Brantford. Uh, and she will be turning 90 in a few weeks and uh, is a- an absolute force of nature. So if you're listening, Mom, and you're still up, uh, I love you. Of course you know that. Uh, Albert and Eric, my trusty interns, are here. And, of course, Tim Spreen on the other side of the glass operating the dials and the buttons. Uh, just a quick note, uh, we are not doing an HOA tonight, and a uh, hangout on air. Uh, so you'll just have to enjoy the program as God intended through your old-fashioned radio. Uh, get up to uh, the website richardserrett.com. And by gosh, if you're not a member already, please register. It's uh, easy and it's fast and it's free. Three of my favorite words. <laughs> Just uh, click on the blue member area login button on the left-hand side. And um, you'll have access to the uh, the past show archives, which now date back to, uh, what is it, um, Eric, uh, the summer of 2012, I think, isn't it? Right, yeah, we have audio uh, programs dating back to the summer of 2012, and you can uh, listen to those. And uh, while you're there at com, check out the news items on the uh, slide carousel up at the top, uh, where uh, Albert has posted some interesting stories, including... This one dates back to uh, May 5th, 2009. Albert dipped into the archives. It's a a high-quality version of the Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Now, that sounds kind of dry. However, if you uh, take some time and delve into that, uh, this is where uh, U.S. Representative Alan Grayson asks the Federal Reserve Inspector General about the $9 trillion missing. It was either lent or spent by the Federal Reserve, but where it went, nobody seems to know. These are trillions of off-balance sheet obligations, and Inspector General Elizabeth Coleman responds to these questions from Representative Alan Grayson that the Inspector General does not know where the $9 trillion went, and it's not tracking where the $9 trillion went. Also, if you were listening to the program last week and I spoke with Dr. Susan Shumsky about the pineal gland and awakening the third eye, here's an interesting story. Research published back in 2001 showed that fluoride fluoride deposits in the pineal gland with age and is associated with enhanced gland calcification. Even aged cadavers were dissected and their pineal glands assayed. 
The report says there was a positive correlation between pineal F and pineal CA, but no correlation between pineal F and, and bone F. Uh, by, by old age, the pineal gland has readily accumulated fluoride, and its um, fluoride-calcium ratio is higher than bone, which uh, sort of correlates directly with, to something Susan Shemsky was saying, that uh, this, the, the, the fluoride in our water seems to inhibit uh, our ability to, um, to utilize our third eye, which seems to be centered in the pineal gland. So there you go. Uh, those are just two of the stories Albert has uh, posted in the uh, slide carousel atop richardserrett.com. Now, one of the hallmarks of this program is that we give, I like to think, a pretty fair hearing to just about anyone, as long as they're not peddling hate. Uh, and just, but however, let me just issue this caveat, uh, because just because we have someone on the program and we hear them out and we provide a safe and respectful platform, it doesn't necessarily mean that I subscribe to what they're saying. And that is admittedly the case with our next guest. But I'm interested, most interested, in what he is about to say. I'm curious to know how he and other members of the society that he is director of, how they've arrived at their conclusions. I think this will make for some interesting listening, even if you don't agree. And I'm willing to say that probably 99% of you don't. The modern-day Flat Earth Society, formerly represented by the International Flat Earth Research Society, maintains that the Earth is indeed flat, not an oblate spheroid. In fact, here in Canada, we have our own Flat Earth Society, which was formed in 1970 by philosopher Leo Ferrari, writer Raymond Fraser, and poet Alden Nolan. And it was active until 1984. Now, let me crib from my guest's website, which we've linked up to at richardserrett.com, and uh, the website is theatlanteanconspiracy.com. Here's what he has to say. Wolves in sheep's clothing have pulled the wool over our eyes. For almost 500 years, the masses have been thoroughly deceived by a cosmic fairy tale of astronomical proportions. We have been taught a falsehood so gigantic and diabolical that it has blinded us from our own experience and common sense, from seeing the world and the universe as they truly are. Through pseudoscience, books and programs, mass media and public education, universities and government propaganda, the world has been systematically brainwashed. Well, I'm in agreement so far. <laughs> Slowly indoctrinated over centuries into the unquestioning belief of the greatest lie of all time. A multi-generational conspiracy has succeeded in the minds of the masses to pick up the fixed earth shape it into a ball, spin it in circles, and throw it around the sun. The greatest cover-up of all time, NASA and Freemasonry's biggest secret, is that we are living on a plane, not a planet. That Earth is the flat, stationary center of the universe. Eric Dubai, or Eric Dubay rather, is an American living in Thailand where he teaches yoga and, uh, uh, and part-time while exposing the New World Order full-time. 
He is also the author of four books and president of the International Flat Earth Research Society. He joins us via Skype from his home in Thailand. Eric, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Is it Dubai? It's Dubai. Terrific. It is, yeah. All right. My dad's a big uh, fan of your show. He listens to every uh, one. So, hey, Dad. I'm sure he's listening right now. Absolutely. Shout out to Dad. Thank you. Uh, now, is your, may I ask, is your mother still uh, uh, living? She is. All right. And Do you want to shout? Happy Mother's Day to her as well. Exactly. Yeah. Shout there you out go. to my mom. She'll be hearing at some point, probably not uh, live like my dad is. All right. Now, uh, let me reiterate again, make it very clear. I don't believe for a minute that the earth is flat. But, as I say, I'm fascinated uh, by the theory. I'm looking forward to, to speaking with you. I'm not here to mock or ridicule or ambush you or shoot you down. I'm going to sit. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask a few challenging questions, time permitting. We may also have some callers who'd like to ask you some questions. Uh, And to quote Mr. Zimmerman, then more than likely you'll go your way and I'll go mine. But let me begin by asking you, Eric, uh, first the the idea of a a flat earth. um, I mean, that was sort of the, um, I guess, the predominant theory up until, you know, Aristotle in around 300 B.C. uh, talked about the earth being a, a spheroid. But how... How did this idea become resurrected? Bring us up to speed on sort of the more the modern day flat Earth society. Yeah, um, throughout history, all around the world, the flat, motionless Earth was a given. It was known until around 500 BC. Pythagoras was the first one to come up with the spinning ball model, and as you mentioned, Aristotle later came up with uh, some more proofs, in quotations, uh, for the spinning ball model. And it didn't really pick up speed, though, until around 1500s when Copernicus wrote his book. And then with the uh, Newton and Galileo, uh, it picked up more speed. And now with NASA, you, it's, you, you can't find anybody that believes uh, the Earth is flat. Everyone believes that it's a spinning ball. And that word belief is pretty interesting when you look at this, because you say, I believe that we're on a flat earth, but in fact, I see that I'm on a flat earth, and I feel that I'm on a motionless earth, and I see that everything in the sky revolves around me. I also see that the sun and the moon are the same size, but I've been brainwashed to believe something very different from what I see. I've been brainwashed to believe that the completely flat horizon that I always see curves at some point. I've been brainwashed to believe that the motionless earth that I feel beneath my feet is actually spinning at a thousand miles per hour. I've also been brainwashed to believe that the stars, sun, and moon that clearly spin overhead are actually some of them we're spinning around and and there's this big uh, spiral motion of... of, uh, you know, planets and galaxies all spiraling, as NASA has told us. Uh, They also tell us that the sun is a big ball of burning light, and it's 400 times further away and 400 times uh, bigger than the moon. Yet, when I look out in the sky, I can see them to be both the same size. So, in fact, uh, what we believe nowadays is based on something contrary to our common sense and experience and actually comes from philosophers like Aristotle giving us supposed proofs of a ball earth and NASA, Photoshop, CGI divisions giving us uh, fake pictures, believe, uh, making us believe otherwise. Uh, but if, you know, if we were just given to our own devices, everybody would be a flat earther. 
because that's how it is. It's flat, it's motionless, everything in the sky revolves around us. And that common sense perspective actually has been experimentally proven as well, many, many ways. My book has over 200 proofs. Um, there's a book in the 1800s called uh, A Hundred Proofs the Earth is Not a Globe. That, and that was, based on the, that was based on something called the Bedford Level Experiment. Uh, now, we're coming up on a break. Uh, can you, what was that, the Bedford Level Experiment? Do you recall? The Bedford Level Experiment was an experiment by Samuel Robotham, who was another flat earth author in the mm -hmm. 1800s. And it was basically an experiment to test if the natural physics of water are as they appear to be, that uh, water finds and remains level. And if that's the case, then we couldn't possibly be on a spinning ball earth because the all the water, the oceans, the earth would have to be curved. Um, yet we know that the natural physics of water is to find and remain level. So on the Bedford level there, it's just a really long canal stretch of straight water that you can do d different measurements to figure out if there actually is the supposed curvature that they say there is in the earth. Um, they, they say the earth is a 25,000 mile in circumference ball. So using spherical trigonometry, you can figure out the curvature, which figures out to eight inches per mile when you square the mile. So uh, the first mile is eight inches, the second is 32 uh, inches, 72 inches, 128 inches, 200 inches. Got it. Let um, me just jump in here, uh, Eric. Uh, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back. Eric Dubay is with us, the director, or the president, rather, of the International Flat Earth Research Society. Yes, it's still out there. And we'll find out why he insists the earth is in fact flat back with more of the conspiracy show don't you dare go away welcome back we have a real humdinger uh, of an hour here eric dubay is with us joining us via skype from his home in thailand and uh, he uh, contends insists maintains most confidently that the earth is flat he is the president of the international flat earth Re research society now, you were talking about uh, the, uh, the, the curvature of the Earth. If it, it, it's supposedly uh, curving, the curvature is approximately eight inches per mile. Uh, so just continue on with that thought, and then we'll move on to uh, something else. Right. So if it was just eight inches per mile, it would be a downward straight slope. So you have to use spherical trigonometry. So it's actually eight inches per mile when you square the mile after that. Um, so, so there's an exponential drop over time. Um, and you're able to measure, uh, for instance, the Bedford experiment you were talking about was over six miles. You should be able, the Earth should drop 16 feet. So you should be able to measure that. And it's never been measured, whether using telescopes, binoculars, flags, lasers. Uh, they've done many tests over the, t the ages, and there's never been even uh, the slightest bit of curvature, not even a little bit. So even if uh, the Earth was a ball, but they got the figure wrong and the circumference was actually much, much bigger. You'd be able to measure some curvature, uh, but there's never been any curvature measured whatsoever. All right. What is, if the, the Earth is flat, uh, we don't, uh, we're not doing a hangout on air, so we can't show people visuals, but g give us a mental picture. What does this plate look like that we're all riding around on or standing on rather? It's stationary. Sure. But what does it look like, this plate? The uh, azimuthal equidistant projection map that the USGS actually uses is uh, the flat earth map. 
the UN logo is another example of it. The UN logo is actually a flat earth map uh, with divided into 33 Masonic sections, by the way. Um, but you can just type in flat earth map on Google and uh, it, it's a disk shape. The North Pole is in the center. All the continents go out from there. And Antarctica, instead of being a uh, ice continent on the bottom of the globe, actually surrounds us 360 degrees. And how far that ice goes outwards uh, is unknown at this point. So it's a cover-up. That's what the Antarctic Treaty is all about. That's why you can't independently explore Antarctica. And when people like Jarl Andehoy uh, try to go down there, they get turned away at gunpoint and put in prison. So um, there's a big uh, cover-up there in Antarctica as well. I don't know how far the ice goes, whether there's an edge, a barrier, a dome, or infinite plane. Um, but what we do know is that the earth and the water is completely flat for as far as we can see and as far as we've measured. And the horizon is completely flat as far up as we go. All amateur rockets and all amateur balloons sent up over 20 miles as high as they can go. The horizon is flat all the way around and it rises to the camera all the way up, uh, rises to the level of the camera. Now, this is totally impossible on a ball, no matter how big the ball was. As you rise up, you have to look down to see the curvature, look down to see the horizon. But what actually happens if you go up in a hot air balloon, the horizon rises right on up with you the whole way up, just keeps on coming up at eye level as high as you're going to go. That's just impossible on a ball. If you think about it, if, the, if you're on a ball and you're in a hot air balloon or a, an airplane, you should not be able to see out your window, straight out your window, the horizon. You should have to look down, further and further down, the higher you ascend to be able to see that horizon. But hmm. you'll never look down to the horizon on the earth. Hmm. It will always rise up to your level. So that's the horizon proof. Uh, there's many other proofs we can get into if you'd well, like to. Yeah, I, I, I don't quite frankly have an answer for that one. I hadn't thought about that, the, the idea of being in a hot air balloon and having to look down, uh, but being able to look straight ahead and see the horizon. Interesting. However, let me ask you about uh, what has been regarded as one of the strangest objects in the heavens, and that is the moon. Uh, and it's strange for a lot of reasons, but I, I bring up the moon now because... The idea that if the Earth is, in fact, a sphere and is rotating, that would account for this oval shadow that it produces each and every lunar eclipse. Does that not prove this, this, this oval shadow that can be seen on the moon, each and every lunar eclipse, uh, uh, does that not prove, Eric, that the Earth is not only round but spherical? Well, this is one of those proofs in quotations that I was telling you about. They claim that the shadow that goes across the moon during a lunar eclipse is actually the shadow of the ball Earth. And that's a proof that the Earth is a ball because you can see the ballish shadow eclipsing the moon. Now, in fact, it's been on record over 50 times in the past 2,000 years that there's been a lunar eclipse while the sun is still in the sky in the same vantage point that you can see an eclipse. Now... This makes their theory impossible because their theory uh, maintains that the sun would be behind the ball earth and the moon would be in a 
180 degree syzygy so they, they would be in a straight line and that's the only way that you could get the ball earth shadow on the moon from the sun if, is if the sun was lighting it from behind but as I said the sun is in the sky many times while these eclipses are happening you can clearly see them both so the angle is not there and it's absolutely impossible that what we're seeing is the shadow of the earth and in fact, if you look at ancient astrology, ancient astronomy, you'll find that what does eclipse the moon is called Rahu, R-A-H-U, or the black sun. It's a third celestial body that they don't tell us about that is the same size as the sun and the moon that eclipses them. It's a dark body. And that's what causes eclipses, not the Earth's shadow. Uh, are, you, are you referring to, when you mentioned this third celestial body, uh, what some have called Nibiru or Planet X? Interesting. I haven't thought of that uh, idea, whether they uh, go together at all. I haven't looked too deeply into the Planet X Nibiru thing because it's all based on this spinning ball Earth cosmology and it just seems like, you know, Zachariah Sitchin, his Masonic work on it, it all puts me up, puts me off the wrong way. It looks like more NASA-style science fiction. So okay. I, haven't, I haven't looked too much into the Planet X Nibiru thing, but I, I suppose very well could be some sort of crossover in the mythologies. Are, are there, according to the Flat Earth uh, research, does that then preclude the existence of other spheroid celestial bodies? Does that mean that, there, that all planets are flat, or are we the only uh, sort of plate? Right. Well, we're a plane, not a planet. So all they did was add a T to the end, and everybody bought it. But in reality, Earth is the only physical plane, and everything above us is just a light so there, there is no spherical, terra firma, ball planets like Mars, Jupiter, and all, all these things that NASA presents us with. You know, the, the moon landing is fake, and it's done here on Earth. The Mars footage is fake, and then done here on Earth. The, you know, all the CGI images you've ever seen of all these planets, you'll notice that there is no actual uh, footage. Type in real planet footage or, or something along those lines in YouTube, and you'll not find a single real uh, video of a planet. And when you look at planets through amateur telescopes, they just look like flat, circular disks of light, just like stars. And in fact, for thousands of years, they were called stars. They're called the wandering stars, as they differ from the fixed stars in their relative motions only. The fixed stars stay completely fixed together in their constellations, day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia, which is another proof that we're not on a spinning ball going all around the galaxy like they tell us, because Polaris, the North Pole star, stays exactly where it is, right above us, and all the other stars rotate in a dome-like planetarium shape eastward in a 24 four-hour cycle all around us and the wandering stars so-called because they kind of wander their own unique paths um, they're still in a general motion they do a kind of a spirograph pattern around the sun so no the sun the moon the stars and the wandering stars that are now called planets are just lights and they, they light up the night sky they give us uh, calendrical time. Um, they divide not only the night from the day, but the years and the months, etc. The word month comes from moon, moon month. And it's uh, the cycle is the same with the female cycle as well. So there's a lot of uh, parallels between, you know, as above, so below. That's where astrology comes from as well. When you when you propagate the spinning ball earth model, then suddenly astrology, which was an ancient 
science of consciousness known to our ancestors suddenly becomes like some stupid superstition because how could the position of the stars over us have any um, significance? But if we are the only plane in existence and everything in the heavens truly does revolve around us, then that denotes a special importance to not only Earth, but to humans, the most intelligent of the intelligent designers' designs. Uh, if we're just, you know, on the speck of God's fingernail in the corner of the universe, like NASA wants us to believe, then it's a very nihilistic, atheistic kind of view. Uh, of, that part, of that part I, I agree. I, I, that part I agree. Uh, and I take a lot of flack. We, we obviously, we talk a lot about UFOs in this program and, and uh, um, extraterrestrials, and I don't subscribe to that theory. I think we are unique in the universe. I think this phenomenon, this UFO ET phenomenon uh, that we're talking about interdimensional uh, uh, mm-hmm. entities here. I think we are in a in a sweet spot in the universe, and I think we are we are alone. This the universe was created for us. However, uh, let me um, go back to some of these other you call them proofs, and uh, obviously you've heard all of these before. But I'll throw them out to you, and you can uh, handle them as you will. And that is, of course, the old ships in the horizon argument that you go down to the beach, and you do not see. Uh, 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 as ships approaching, they don't just appear out of the horizon uh, like they would if the world was in flat, fact flat. They seem to emerge from beneath the sea uh, because they're obviously, you know, they're not emerging from the waves, but they're coming up into the horizon. So does that not, I mean, to the, <laughs> to the naked eye, obviously, to me anyway, I look at that and I say, well, obviously, that's because the earth is round. Yeah, that's another one of the old proofs. Um, but in fact, it's a proof of the opposite when you do it yourself. Because what happens is if you watch a boat disappearing over the horizon, as you said, the hull is going to disappear before the masthead. And people have been saying for centuries that that's because it's going over the curvature of the ball earth. But if that was the case, then after it disappeared from sight, from going over the curvature of the ball earth, you would not be able to bring it back into sight by using, say, a zoom camera, a binoculars, or a telescope. But in fact, you can uh, let the boat completely disappear and then train a telescope on it, and you will bring the entirety of the boat, including the hull, back into view, proving that it did not descend over a wall of convex water And in fact, the horizon is the vanishing line of perspective from your point of view. And that's why you can zoom in on it, or if you uh, rise in altitude, you can see more, or on a clearer day, you can see uh, see further. The horizon is not the curvature of the ball earth, as we've been told. It is simply the vanishing line of perspective, the law of perspective, as any artist would know. The same reason, you know, uh, railroad tracks seem to converge uh, on each other, off in the distance, this kind of thing. All right. Uh, or or this, in the hallway okay. as well, the ceiling and the, sure. and the floor converge, yeah. All right. Same now, idea. Um, you, you've mentioned, you mentioned the constellations earlier, and let me just throw this one out again. And, and just to remind people, Eric Dubay is with us, the president of the International Flat Earth Society, or Flat Earth Research Society, joining us here on The Conspiracy Show from his home in Thailand. And... Um, uh, let me, before I get to the next one, and we are approaching another break, and I want to talk about some of these things you've already mentioned, but we'll come back to them. Uh, when, for you, did this realization 
uh, happen? I mean, you grew up, I'm, I'm guessing, in a public school system. You had the same sort of, as you call it, propaganda, a brainwashing. Uh, what was the aha moment for Eric Dubay that the earth was flat? Uh, it took years of researching before I, I finally said, yep, it's for sure. Because it, what, it, what it's like when you're researching the flat earth, it's like you've got your hands out, you've got the ball earth in one hand, you've got the flat earth in the other hand, and you think that there's a lot of proof for the ball and not so much proof for the flat earth. And then you start to look into it, and you find all of these proofs for the flat earth, and then you find all these debunked supposed proofs for the ball earth, and then your ball earth hand just starts getting weighted down with lies, and your flat earth hand just rises up until you realize that we've been completely lied to, and the earth is in fact flat. So um, I would recommend that this process will certainly happen to everyone who reads my book, The Flat Earth Conspiracy, and I've gotten rave reviews saying so. And also you can check out the, all the 1800s flat earth material. That's where my main aha moment came from, was reading Robotham's books, Carpenter's books, uh, like, like we talked about, 100 Proofs the Earth's Not a Globe, um, this one called Zetetic Cosmogony and Zetetic Astronomy. These are both good ones. Uh, if you come to my uh, International Flat Earth Research Society, it's ifers.boards.net, I-F-E-R-S. Uh, I've got all those books there and many other materials uh, that you can look through. How many members so you do you have? have How many members do you have at the International Flat Earth Research Society? I just restarted it. Uh, as you mentioned, the International Flat Earth Research Society was the first uh, Flat Earth Society in, in the 50s, and then Leo Ferraris came along in the 70s, and then um, his is the only one that existed in the form of the Flat Earth Society online. Um, and so I just restarted the International Flat Earth Research Society uh, just a few months ago. So we've got about 500 members and uh, about 800 guests visiting every day at the moment. But any uh, any uh, scientists, astronomers that are that are part of your organization? Uh, yeah, we just had one join that she went to school for astrophysics, and she uh, she didn't finish her degree. She said, and she's quite glad now that she started looking into everything. Interesting. All right, Eric, stay put. We'll come back on the other side. The flat earth. Believe it or not. Come back and uh, listen to some more of my conversation with Eric Dubay right here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back. Eric Dubay joining us live from Thailand via Skype talking about uh, the flat earth. Uh, I was on um, my, uh, my uh, lovely bride, the mighty Aphrodite. Uh, is in Greece at the moment, and we were on uh, FaceTime uh, at about five o'clock. Five o'clock uh, this afternoon, and uh, she was getting ready for bed. It was midnight in uh, in Greece, so we have time zones. The idea of time zones. Do not the uh, Eric the existence of time zones. How can we have time zones if the Earth is flat? I mean, we should all be seeing the sun. I mean, if the Earth is not rotating on its own axis then we should all be experiencing you know, the same daylight at the same time, shouldn't we? The sun is not 
93 million miles away, as we're told, nor is the Earth a ball spinning around it. In fact, the Earth is a flat plane, and the Sun is a disk that spins over and around the Earth in circles every day. Same with the Moon. If you can imagine the yin-yang sign, uh, the Chinese yin-yang symbol is actually a symbol representing the Sun and the Moon's path over the flat Earth. So imagine the yin-yang spiraling in a circle. The sun, you can't see the sun all over the earth from every point at all times. Uh, and time zones are caused by its uh, motion over the flat earth, over and around it. So every 15 degree demarcation point around the circle is one hour. And it will do this 24 times a day. Um, so time zones are caused by the sun moving over and around the earth, not by the earth spinning around the uh, the Earth spinning, as they say. All right, um, gravity. We have we have to talk about gravity. And if the Earth is a sphere, uh, then you know no matter where you're standing on a sphere, because it's a consistent shape, you have exactly the same amount of sphere under you. So the um, you know the center of gravity doesn't doesn't change wherever you are on the sphere but if you're on a plane a flat plane you know think about uh, I guess spinning a dish around or something like that a, a dinner plate the center of mass is in a flat plane is more or less in the center am I are we in agreement so far the, the center of mass the center it, of the center of mass of a flat plane is in its center more or less but it's, it's not spinning though right it's stationary and the mass is distributed all over the Earth. Uh, I don't know how much more mass there would be at the very center than in Antarctica or in the continents. Um, so I wouldn't quite say that now. Ah, that's that's true. If it's not spinning, then then the the center of gravity would be consistent. Okay. Right. Now, now gravity doesn't exist. Gravity is just their catch-all term uh, for what they can't explain. So they say that the reason that the oceans, buildings, and people don't fall off the underside of the ball earth is because of gravity. It holds us on. They say the reason that you don't feel the thousand mile per hour spinning atmosphere going eastward all the time is because gravity pulls the atmosphere along with the spinning ball earth just so perfectly so you don't feel it. They say gravity causes the moon to orbit the earth and the earth to orbit the sun. And gravity actually is what caused the sun and the moon and the earth and everything to form in the first place in their materialistic cosmology where they try to get rid of God and they use gravity instead, another G word. And gravity is actually what created the planets and the sun and the moon and everything. And gravity caused the Big Bang and gravity pulls the ocean's tides. Interesting how gravity supposedly pulls the ocean's tides, but it can never reach the lakes, ponds, marshes, and other bodies of water, can it? It just pulls the oceans. Nice, nice. Gravity, that's gravity for you. But it, in reality, everything that nowadays is explained through gravity was already explained adequately through the laws of density and buoyancy. So if you drop a feather and it slowly floats to the ground, or you drop a brick and it drops right to the ground quickly, or you fill up a helium balloon and it rises, or you fill up a hydrogen balloon and it rises even faster, 
This is all based on density and buoyancy. It has nothing to do with gravity. Gravity is this fictional pulling force that they say pulls us to the center of the ball earth and keeps us from falling off of it. But they can't actually show you any example of some mass by virtue of its large mass alone causing other masses to stick to or orbit around it as the, they claim gravity, this force gravity does. So gravity was given to us by a knighted Freemason, Sir Isaac Newton, who just took the pre-existing laws of density and buoyancy and applied it to the budding heliocentric spinning ball model. And that's what we're taught in schools nowadays. All right, we'll take another time out. Uh, I've been on a plane. I've, um, you know, fairly long trips on a plane. And it seems planes can travel in a relatively straight line for a very long time and not fall off any edges. Uh, They can, and also theoretically some do, actually circle the Earth nonstop. So we'll find out what that portends. What does that mean in terms of a flat Earth theory? Back with more of my conversation with Eric Dubay here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. All right, we are back. Our last segment with Eric Dubay. A president of the International Flat Earth Research Society joining us live on the line from his home in Thailand, or I should say via Skype, uh, here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, now, uh, people may remember, it's long gone now, but the, the Concorde, uh, the Superjet, and uh, this was a phenomenal uh, aircraft. Uh, this um, thing, it, I, its top cruising altitude was something like 60,000 feet. That's about 11 miles high. And, uh, I mean, f- I've seen pictures taken from the Concorde. I don't, I, um, I'd like to know how you respond. I mean, when you see pictures taken from the Concorde, 11 miles up, you can clearly see the curvature of the Earth, Eric. Are those photos or, faked, or what is, what are, how do you respond to that? Well... The fact that you see the horizon out your window at 60,000 feet at eye level, as I said, already tells you that the horizon is flat. It couldn't possibly be curved and still be out your window at 60,000 feet because you are above it. No matter how big the ball is, they say it's 25,000 miles in circumference. Imagine it was 25 million miles in circumference. If you're 60,000 feet above it and you look straight out your window, you should be looking off into outer space, shouldn't you? But you won't. You'll be looking straight at the horizon. And if you see that the horizon warps a little bit, it's because of the curve in the window. There's a curve in every uh, commercial airplane window. Or a wide-angle fisheye lens, like in the Red Bull dive. You'll notice they used on the outside cameras for that Red Bull dive Felix Bumgardner did. The outside cameras are fisheye lenses. And so the supposed curvature of the Earth starts right from the, the base of the Earth all the way up to 128,000 feet, the curve remains the same because it's not the curve of the Earth, it's just the curve of the camera. So when you're seeing, and as I mentioned, there's amateur uh, rockets and balloons that have been sent up over 20 miles, so much higher than the Concorde, and uh, it's still completely flat all the way around and rises to eye level. Uh, when we look over the, you know, the, uh, the 60, nearly 60 years of manned missions to space. And we begin with people like Yuri Gagarin from the USSR back in 1961. And uh, uh, again in 61, um, we had Titov, And of course, we had the Americans, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom and John Glenn in around the same time. 
uh, this space race between the Americans and their enemy, the Soviets. If the Earth was flat, why wouldn't the why wouldn't the Americans' enemies blow the whistle? Um, you know, why would they maintain this conspiracy? Well, first of all, Russia and America or any other statist nation are not enemies at the highest levels. They're all friends and they're all Freemasons uh, and usually members of other secretive organizations as well. So the idea that uh, America and Russia are enemies is just like the idea that Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan are enemies, but in reality we know that's fake. And these space programs all over the world are fake. The French program's fake, the Russian program's fake, NASA's fake. The, Jap the new Japanese and Chinese programs are terribly fake. If you take a look at some of their images, uh, they're much worse than the NASA ones. They're even easier to debunk than the NASA images. So these space programs are just a way to fleece the populations from their tax money. NASA's got hundreds of billions of dollars in their pockets to give us crap CGI photos and brainwash the whole world. Um, so the the fact that there's space agencies all over the world that are doing this now uh, doesn't actually you know mean anything because they're all part of the deception anyway. Anyone selling you a spinning ball Earth is leading you up a creek without a paddle. Well, let's talk about the nature of the deception. Uh, what is the point of trying to brainwash the masses that we are living on a on a a, a plate and not a planet? What purpose does that serve? Well, this is speculation now because I'm not, I'm not the person enacting this deception. Um, as I just said, NASA and the other space agencies certainly are some of the biggest black budget black holes in existence. So there's definitely a profit motive to do this, just as there is with any deception or manipulation. You fool people into giving you money. And uh, these space agencies aren't, aren't the only example we see of governments doing that to us. So they're definitely fooling us into giving them money. But beyond that, there's a spiritual nature to this deception where they're, they're materialists and they're trying to come up with this whole cosmology, this whole Big Bang idea that can erase God from existence, erase intelligent design, and maintain that just physical matter gravity, their God, causes a big bang, sneeze, a creationary explosion, and all of this stuff just coalesces together into this perfect earth and, you know, uh, celestial bodies and everything that we see around us. Uh, to me, I don't know what you think, Richard, it's pretty obvious that we're in an intelligently designed system here. I, I agree with possibly... you, 100%. I agree with you. But I don't see but, how it follows that uh, if you allow for the existence of spheroids uh, in the universe, that that takes God out of the equation. God could just as easily... Uh, in fact, uh, there was an interesting book written a number of years ago called Who Built the Moon? And I had the co-authors on the program, and they talked about what a remarkable heavenly body the moon is. Uh, and there, you know, the suggestion was that it, you know, it was built, it was designed, because without it, the, the, there would be no... Uh, if the Earth or the Moon and the Earth were in exactly the distance that they are apart, there would not be intelligent life uh, so on Earth. So it's as if the Moon was designed. And they went off on a theory about perhaps it was time travelers and so forth. But, I mean, what, 
it was designed, yes, it was, by God, as the universe yeah. was. Why can, why can we not have God and spheroids at the same time? Oh, well, I mean, spheroids are just a tiny, tiny part of it, right? The spheroid model is just how they, they tried to fit in all the phenomena. But nowadays, we've got the Big Bang, evolution, dinosaurs. They, they've built this whole thing up so that people think that we're coming from nothing. Everything came from nothing. And so there is no spiritual layer to existence. There is no God. Everything is material. Everything is physical. You know, those status and selfishness, materialism, it fits into these psychopaths that control everything. It fits into their ideology. It also fits into their consumer mentality they'd like us to have so that we just keep buying their products and believing their baloney that they sell us. Um, you know, they, they set themselves up as the authority. It's like I told you at the beginning, if you just look out, uh, you can see the horizon's flat. You can feel that we're not moving. You can see that everything's revolving around us. But then Neil deGrasse Tyson or Carl Sagan comes along and says, oh, silly, you, you believe your senses? You believe your own eyes? Don't do that. Believe me. Here, I'll show you some CGI. I'll show you a documentary. I'll show you a spinning ball earth. And then suddenly you abandon your own senses, your own common sense, your own experience, and you prostrate yourselves at the feet of these authorities and you just believe everything they say. So nowadays everyone is believing that they're on a spinning ball instead of seeing and feeling that they're not. Is it difficult for you uh, in just in society in general? I mean, when people know that, that you are uh, a flat earther, uh, I mean, does it make life difficult for you, uncomfortable? Not at all, no. It's much better knowing the truth and living it and uh, spreading it. And um, no, I don't. I've been in the conspiracy scene, writing conspiracy books and stuff for 10 years, so I'm quite used to people ridiculing stuff they know nothing about, and it doesn't affect me. And, and uh, if I may ask, how does your. Uh, you mentioned your father, because he's a fan of the program and so forth. How does. How does do, you, do you discuss this with him? Does he engage you? Is, does he believe? Does he uh, share your. Your theory? Yeah, yeah. He finished reading my book, and he says he's on board now. Really interesting. And be, so before that, he was not on board, and now you've you've convinced him. Yeah, actually, everyone that I've uh, that's been in contact with me who has read my book is a flat earther now. I, I haven't heard of anyone who's read my book and still believes the spinning ball. That's fascinating. Uh, and um, do you? Do you, if I can use the term, do you proselytize? I mean, do you do you do you go out and try and convince other people, or do you do you simply you allow them to come to you and ask you about it? Sure, all of the above. I make a lot of YouTube videos. I have some blogs and websites, uh, books. I go on forums. I have my own forum. Yeah, I've definitely been proselytizing uh, this and other conspiracy truths for a long time. Have you offered to debate? Uh, let's say a, a non-flat earther, let's say at a, some academic institution, an astronomer, an, an astrophysicist, have, have you ever offered to debate uh, any of these individuals and have they ever accepted? No, but I would be uh, interested, especially some of the bigger NASA names like Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'd love to debate him. And you're confident that you would, uh, you would emerge victorious? <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's not even a shadow of a doubt in your mind that the Earth is flat. No, no, I researched it long enough to make sure that I was correct. 
It's fascinating. And still researching it now today. I don't have answers for everything. Like I told you, you know, what's beyond the Antarctic ice and stuff, I, I don't know. There's still mysteries to it. But as far as whether the Earth is spinning or a ball, no, it's absolutely not. Uh, what about, I mentioned the transit, you know, these, these long flights. Uh, airplanes can now circumnavigate the globe, uh, they would say, uh, as, as one of the proofs that we are not living on a flat Earth. That you can fly yeah. around the Earth nonstop. Right. But you can fly around a flat plane as well. And so all these people from Magellan up to current plane circumnavigations are just going east to west around the flat Earth. They're not going uh, under the supposed ball uh, under Antarctica. There are no routes that go straight over Antarctica, as there should be, such as uh, Australia to South America and some other routes like this. The straightest line path, if we are on a spinning ball Earth, is to go straight across Antarctica. But they never do that. They take the long route around. And when you ask them, why do you take the long route around instead of just going straight, they say, it's too cold. The planes can't handle it. But of course, this doesn't make much sense when they're supposedly out there in outer space and have gone to the moon where it's much colder and much hotter, and they have the technology to do that. So why can't they just go straight across Antarctica on these flights? They never do. So circumnavigation uh, is only east to west, and that's possible on a plane as well as a globe. So this supposed proof doesn't actually prove one way or the other because it, it's possible on both. You mentioned that the United Nations flag uh, is, in fact, a depiction of a flat Earth. So what are they trying to tell us? They're trying to clue us in? Is that, uh, are they teasing us? Why would they do that? Um, well, it's, it's not only is it a flat Earth map, but it's divided like a bullseye target into 33 sections. And, you know, Freemasonry has sure. 33 degrees. Right. So, and it's also blue, like the first three blue degrees of Masonry. So to me, the, the flag, the logo, is like a big nudge-nudge, wink-wink for the Freemasons of the world. It's the biggest and oldest secret society in existence with over 5 million members worldwide. And they're the ones who are behind this spinning ball deception from the get-go. Uh, so it's kind of uh, a way for them, just like all the symbology they use in Hollywood and elsewhere, it's a way for them to communicate to each other, like, hey, we know what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, the sheeple public uh, can look at that and really not even pay attention whatsoever and have no idea what's going on. And it gives you this symbolic control over humanity because you know the symbolism, the right brain kind of information, and everyone else is locked in their left brain prisons where they can't read the symbolism and see what you're talking about. Ancient uh, society, ancient languages were all symbolic, you know, hieroglyphics, cuneiform, sure. mm -hmm. they, they were all based on symbols. And so the people who were using those languages were much more right-brained. They're much more uh, right-brained. Well, actually, they're probably even nowadays we're overly left-brained if you look at a, a, yeah, a CAT scan. I think that's but, absolutely uh, true. Uh, Eric, I, w I wish we had more time. Perhaps we can, uh, maybe I can arrange for a debate on this program. Uh, if you'd be good for that, and I'm sure you would be. Eric, a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Leave us with a website again. Yeah, it's uh, AtlanteanConspiracy.com. A pleasure to meet you, and, uh, and thanks for, uh, for sharing. Thank you. It's good talking to you. You too. Likewise, Eric Dubay, president of the International Flat Earth Research Society. Fascinating. My website, RichardSerrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, wherever it leads... Follow the truth. 
We'll say thanks for inviting me into your home. You have found us. This is, in fact, The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. I mentioned last week that inventor Bruce McBurney passed away suddenly in his home in Niagara Falls, Canada at the age of 60. Bruce had been on this program a couple of times, uh, and uh, I met Bruce at my first Follow the Truth conference back in November 2014 uh, when he handed me a pamphlet that he published, uh, which was all about the 100-mile-per-gallon engine. And I had him on the show uh, back in December 2014, and I had him on again in early 2015 to talk about colloidal silver, which he manufactured. Uh, then, in, I believe it was March, I traveled down to uh, Niagara Falls with the family, took the boys to a, uh, a tropical bird sanctuary down there, and uh, while I was down there, I thought, I will drop in and, and, and see Bruce. Uh, and he gave us several quarts of his colloidal silver, and he explained how he manufactured it, and it actually came in handy uh, a couple of weeks later when we had that uh, fire in our condo here in Toronto. You may recall, the mighty Aphrodite and I both received rather serious burns to our hands, and we suddenly remembered that we'd been down to see Bruce, and we had this colloidal silver on hand, so we doused our wounds quite liberally with the colloidal silver, and uh, I had absolutely no pain. Then, early last week, I received this email telling me of Bruce's passing, suddenly, so uh, tonight I wanted to pay tribute to Bruce. At the bottom of the hour, I'm going to replay a portion of our interview from December 2014 in, uh, in which he talked about the 100-mile-per-gallon engine. This was uh, not his invention. The idea of this super carburetor uh, that essentially, I guess, cracks the gas molecules... Because it's not the liquid that burns, right? It's the vapor. Uh, anyway, it's, been, it's an idea that's really been around, I, th I think, since the 1930s. And uh, as you'll hear him explain, one gentleman down in Texas, it seems to me, had developed uh, his version of this super carburetor, 100 mile per gallon engine. And uh, the claim was that he was offered big money from big oil to uh, put this thing on the shelf and allow it to gather dust, and he refused. Turned down millions of dollars, so the legend goes. And then, not too long, not too much later, this gentleman was found uh, dead in the desert under somewhat mysterious circumstances. I remember asking Bruce at that time, Don't you ever worry. You know, you're, you're distributing these pamphlets on the 100-mile-per-gallon engine. You've developed your own super carburetor. Don't you ever worry about your own safety? And he said, heck no, I'm a Christian, and there's nothing they can do to me. I'm just trying to make, uh, you know, the planet a better place for my grandchildren because one of the other attributes of this super carburetor, 100-mile-per-gallon engine, is that it produces virtually no noxious fumes, no pollution. So, again, at the bottom of the hour, we will hear from the late Bruce McBurney. Uh, before that, a fairly 
rare occurrence here on The Conspiracy Show. Now until the bottom of the hour, open lines. That's right. You, me, the telephone, right here, right now. We don't have an opportunity to do this very often, but for, uh, but for the next half hour, you can climb aboard and uh, virtually steer this ship anywhere you want to take it. Let me give you the phone numbers right now. 416-360-0740. Again, that's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. That's 1-866-740-4740. Now, while we're waiting for the phone uh, calls to come in, uh, just a quick programming note. Next week on The Conspiracy Show, Dr. Shiv Chopra will be here to talk about genetically modified food. There's a big march happening, not only here in Toronto in a couple of weeks, called the March Against Monsanto, uh, but these marches are apparently happening all over North America. It may be even international, but there will be one here in Toronto. So Dr. Shiv Chopra will uh, talk about genetically modified food and the uh, the march against Monsanto. Also coming up on the program, uh, John Herlosky. John Herlosky is the co-director of Project Trojan Warrior 2, a mind-body integration training program that works closely with members of SEAL Team 1 and 3. And he's going to talk about his journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. This was the uh, the CIA-sponsored psychic spy training program, and he, I guess, he sort of went in there undercover uh, as a skeptic, thinking he was going to debunk the program, and uh, he was taking a class with uh, Dr. Morehouse, who I've interviewed a number of times over the years, who was part of Project Stargate. So that's that should be interesting. John Herlosky. Uh, it's called, his book, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, A Skeptic's Journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. That's upcoming right here on The Conspiracy Show. All right, let us dive into the calls, and uh, we will begin with Bill. Bill, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. How are you? Great. Where are you, where, where are you calling from, Bill? Calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. The Keystone State. Well, welcome aboard. And I understand you have a, a website you wanted to talk about. It's uh, it's called areyouforthepeople.org. And this is um, an American uh, initiative dealing with, I guess, upcoming elections. And you want to try and keep uh, uh, politicians on the straight and narrow. Tell me a little bit about areyouforthepeople.org. I wanted to reach you because we like your style and because we wanted to pull in some Canadian help. We think we can do that as well. It's actually a website that is for U.S. to start with, but we have people from two other countries working on it as well. And the second country actually might have the website up pretty soon for theirs as well, and that would be Sweden, believe it or not. So oh, interesting. Okay. We, we you want this US thing to go global. Yes, I think, I think that uh, the things we're looking for are that put questions in front of candidates that stress freedom, honesty, and liberty. And it's kind of surprising how many people around the planet like freedom, liberty, and those kinds of things. 
So, uh, like I said, it's three countries to start with. Uh, we're talking to two others right now as well. Focal points, U.S. to begin, and that site's up and going. And like I said, I wanted to be able to see if there are Canadian listeners that are interested because I strongly feel that this would work well there as well. And uh, with some help, we could set that up pretty quickly for them and for you as well. So the idea, Bill, if I'm understanding it, and I'm on the website right now, and again, it's www.ruforthepeople.org, is you want to arm uh, people uh, with sort of a list of questions that they can ask candidates when they go out canvassing, and you know, rather than just uh, say, sure, you can put a sign on my lawn, or yes, I'm a registered Democrat, or I'll vote for you, or, or what have you. You want to you want to encourage people to engage these candidates. Maybe invite them in for a cup of tea, sit them well, down, and put their feet to the fire and ask them a series of questions to determine to determine what exactly. Even a little stronger than that, we've worked through several months worth of coming up with fifteen questions for the U.S. It's not all encompassing. We know there's other things to ask, and you know there, there's other problems beyond these fifteen. But these 15 things hit a lot of serious areas, and we want to be able to take these same 15 questions and go to all the candidates possible and get a yes or no vote from them on whether they agree or disagree with the questions. And then collect all that stuff back and, and post it for everybody to see the answers to that. If it's the same questions everywhere. We think that they are uh, universal enough that it, and common sense enough that it's difficult to say no to them and in fact, like our question 10, if you're on the site later on when you check it out, question 10 directly addresses the uh, Inspector General Elizabeth Coleman's nice losing of $9 trillion in the U.S. of U.S. taxpayer dollars in the Fed. Right. I, I, let me uh, just point out for those uh, who uh, missed that particular uh, program, and I was talking about a, a story that we've posted on the website uh, which dates back to 2009, and this was a, a U.S. representative asking uh, about the missing $9 trillion, uh, and it hasn't been tracked, and it can't be accounted for, and nobody seems to know. So the question 10 that you just mentioned says, will you work to pass laws that mandate full audits of the central banks with non-redacted results made public? That's question right. ten, 10, and uh, you've got these... Uh, there are 15 questions, as you mentioned. Again, the website is areyouforthepeople.org, uh, and you've got them in, in categories. So you've got legal, economic, food, health, and education. Correct. Now, uh, Bill, aside from you, who is involved in this, and how did it get started? And, and, um, uh, and then we can sure. w work through some of the questions here quickly. Sure. It started from looking through ways of trying to do something more than – we think there's really only two options for – People who are concerned with these kinds of questions, our two options are to vote, and we're, we're allowed to vote for people that are chosen by corporations that we really can't control who we get to pick from. And once they're elected, they do whatever they want to do anyway, and there's no, no recourse to go after them to do anything the right way. And the other is to go protest, stand around in crowds and, and wave signs around. The kinds of people that... that are interested in these questions are the kinds of people that work during the day. And it's difficult to go take the day off and stand somewhere and protest so that the media can come and kind of control the viewpoint of what is being seen. 
maybe let the crowd of 10,000 only see four, you know, 200 or so. Get the person who's dressed the worst, wearing the, you know, the, the stupidest sign, and use that as a spokesperson for the group, and kind of control the message that way. We think there's something more to be able to do, just standing around in a crowd or voting sort of helplessly for whoever presented to us. Let me jump in, Bill. We're going to take a timeout. We'll come back and sure. we'll uh, finish up here. A few more questions remain. And uh, we are talking with uh, Bill about the website areyouforthepeople.org and this campaign to ask candidates 15 essential questions. Hold their feet to the fire. Areyouforthepeople.org. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and Open Lines. Now to the bottom of the hour. Stay with us. Welcome back. Open lines now to the bottom of the hour. Just uh, uh, going to spend another moment here with uh, uh, Bill checking in from Philadelphia talking about areyouforthepeople.org. Uh, very quickly, uh, give us a sampling of some of the questions. Well, sure. Uh, again, they are in legal, economic, and food and health. And they are a pretty wide, wide, wide area they cover, but they go for things that uh, include vaccinations, GMOs, Will you pass laws that uh, prohibit the withdrawal of deposits from bank accounts, uh, government banks, or other entities other than the account holder? So we're trying to stop the bail-in sort of issues. Uh, will you pass laws to prevent the use of U.S. military forces or foreign military personnel against American people? You're watching all the massive militarization going on and the incredible amount of military weapons being poured into the uh, local police departments in the U.S. Something's going on there, and we kind of would like to get some answers to why and can they stop. So uh, the questions cover a fairly wide area, thought about them a lot. Uh, we had impact from, again, multiple countries on this, so that the questions kind of can work in other places too. And we think that uh, if asked, we'll get some answers from people on what they really think. Well, what's to prevent a politician from simply giving you an answer that they think you want to hear, which is exactly what politicians do? Right. What, what happens now is they, they get to answer individual things in individual scenarios the way they want to. And you know that the message changes based on where they're at or who they're talking to. That's another reason for the set series of questions that will go against them all. Once they answer the questions... If they tell the truth or they don't tell the truth, we have the answer to them. And we think that at least we have something in our hands now, if they answer them, and again, even if they did not, to address the issue of what's next. Instead of being elected and then going off and just doing whatever they want to do after that. All right, Bill. And again, the website is areyouforthepeople.org. Uh, and do people need to register? Is uh, do you want them to me- register as members, or they can just send an email in? And if they want to help, we'll be glad to have their assistance. If they have ideas, glad to listen. And we're going to have forums for them to share ideas as well. Can I take a second to thank them? Absolutely. Just a second. I want to thank the original core team. Thank you, LD. Thank you, Cobra, Maggie, and Gopher. And thank you, Faye. Without whose help, I would easily be five years younger. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a 
this is a great initiative, and I, uh, I, I encourage people to, to visit areyouforthepeople.org, and hopefully this will uh, develop into a, a worldwide movement. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Bill. Bill checking in from uh, Philadelphia. All right, up next, ah, okay, this is Bob Dunn. Uh, Bob also, I think, is in, uh, Bob is in Pittsburgh, I think, and Bob was with us a couple of weeks ago talking about Planet X, the approach of Nibiru. Uh, he's been photographing or video, uh, videoing the, um, what he says is the approach of Planet X, putting a, a special filter on his, iPhone, his smartphone camera and pointing it at the sun, and he's back here with an update. Bob, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. Good, thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Wow. What is, uh, it's been a couple of weeks, maybe a month since you were on. Uh, very quickly, uh, explain how you're capturing the, uh, this image and, and what, it is, what it is it that you're seeing and tracking. Well, matter of fact, I just uploaded a video today, or uh, pictures today. <clears throat> I'm using a 3G cell phone, so it's not real high tech. And most of the captures I'm using, a, uh, an old computer floppy disk that I cut up. The shinier ones work the best, and I'm taped two layers to the back of the phone over the camera lens and then just shoot directly at the sun. And I'm always catching at least two or three other objects up there besides the sun. I take it in all five uh, camera formats. The regular, there's a negative format, uh, tepia, blue, and uh, a black screen. So you get five different uh quality images and uh it's, it's getting bigger so we're get, definitely getting closer to it and and uh, you estimated the uh, the mass of this particular object to be what well um you just go, can go by reports and i've been doing this for like over four years following trying to follow this thing on the internet and whatnot and then finally i started capturing shots of it back in uh, mid-november but uh, it's supposed to be approximately four times the mass of Jupiter. That's the dwarf star. And it could have five to seven planets and or moons that are orbiting this uh, dark star, brown dwarf star, which is why it's not, it's not readily visible unless it's up near the sun because it needs something to illuminate it. And now that it's up by the sun, and it would appear that it's, Actually, in front of the sun now, by the way, I moved the camera around because you can catch uh, lens flares when you move the camera a little bit because it's right directly in front of the sun. Well, how do you know? How, do you, how, how, how are you certain that, that this is not simply a lens flare? Well, because you got the lens flare from the sun itself, and then you still have three other ones, you know. And, and so this is, a, this is a brown dwarf. Uh, and and it's dragging the entire its entire solar system along with it. Is that the idea? Yeah, it's supposed to have like a mini solar system with it, with planet Nibiru being one of the planets, which of course uh, Zacharias Titchen wrote a lot about, who translated this ancient Sumerian texts. And you're attributing a lot of the recent volcanic activity to this the approach, oh, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, Yellowstone's heating up. Uh, that one in Hawaii's heating up. The lava lakes already collapsed one time the crater around the lava lake they've been having a lot more seismic activity too worldwide of course you know about the nepal earthquake yes and uh we just had one today in 6.1 over in the izu islands japan region do you have an eta for this 
Well, it's really hard to say, but um, I can guarantee it's going to be before the uh, it's going to be before that Jade Helm exercise they've been hyping so much in the media and on the internet. Uh, which is, I think, scheduled for July 20th. Yeah, this is the Department of Homeland Security military maneuvers in which they are targeting uh, essentially Republican states that have uh, sort of threatened, uh, not threatened uh, um, to separate, but um, are sort of, you know, grousing with uh, the the feds over state rights and so forth, which is kind of odd language that they are basically declaring war on or, or simulating war against their own people. Uh, well, I think that's just a lot of hype, to be honest with you. Do you have they're, a you? You got a YouTube channel? They to keep the, they're doing anything they can to keep the uh, focus away from uh, the natural disasters that are going on, the okay. seismic activity, volcanoes, and of course the uh, incoming Nibiru system. If you notice, they'll chemtrail the sky real heavily to your west to obstruct to obscure the view. Absolutely. Okay. Do you have a YouTube channel, Bob? A, yeah, a YouTube you just channel. Google Robert Dunn YouTube. And uh, there may be more than one that pops up, but just look for the one that has the pictures of uh, the sun with a couple objects next to it, and that'll be my channel. There's a couple other people that have been catching some great shots of it, too. The uh, Louie7777 put out a nice video last week on it, and then uh, Gianna Serendipity Taylor channel has put up a couple of nice videos this week on it. Where are they, all the all ancient, or the the, uh, the um, amateur astronomers, you know, um, crying? Um... Well, because uh, there's been over 100-plus <clears throat> astronomers or astrophysicists that have wound up mysteriously dead, and they work in pairs, and the both of them are dead within weeks of each other whenever, uh, I guess, they were going to go speaking out about it. The guy who originally discovered it, Shoemaker, Gene Shoemaker, he was over in Australia. He was fixing to release a paper back in the early 80s, and he supposedly got run over by one of them triple uh, truck deals down in Australia, outback, and then his observatory burned to the ground. Uh, then you have uh, the uh, Sechi naval astronomer. Uh, he was talking with Andrew Zacharias Stitch, and I can't think of his name at the moment, but... He mysteriously died, so uh, they're they're scared. They're running scared. All right. Well, and listen, plus, Bill, you've got to you've got to. They're not going to get their grant money either. Of okay. course, if they if they go against the program, you know what I mean. Got it, Bill. Got to run, but uh, listen, stay safe and uh, keep us updated. We'll uh, we'll we'll speak again soon. Okay. Thanks, Richard. God bless. All right. Thanks, Bob. I think I called him Bill, but it's uh, Bob Dunn on okay. uh, the approach of uh, Nibiru and Planet X. Uh, we've got time to squeeze in one more, I think, and uh, we're going to go to Jared. Jared, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks, Richard. Okay, I've got here that you are a, a, a director of a um, a film called Last Caller. Yeah. Uh, and uh, where are you checking in from, by the way? Seattle, Washington. Ah, excellent. Okay. So, um, tell me about, uh, this. is this a student film? Yeah, it's um, it's a spring thesis project. So pretty much everybody involved with this been been uh, doing a ton of stuff, and this is kind of like the the biggest project of the year. All right, and this is it's an interesting interesting premise because it somewhat uh, mirrors what we do on this program. It's it's based on a, a host of a conspiracy paranormal type show, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but it's not biographical. This is not about me. Let's state that for the record. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. It's actually the the kind of the catalyst for the writer um, was, uh, and I'm sure most of your listeners know about this, but the the famous or infamous uh, Area 51 phone call from uh, 1997 to uh, Coast to Coast AM. Um, the uh, just the recording of that was kind of inspiration for the the writer, um, and so it's it's loosely like inspired by by that and just the information or content of that phone call, okay. and the fact that the station did lose contact with the satellites, right, um, right. So it's kind of a what if this is what happened at the station that night. That's kind of the the premise. Okay, and how long is this film? Uh, it's going to be. Probably like twelve to fifteen minutes, something like that. All right, and this is a real, this is an actual, uh, this is a professionally shot. Uh, you've got a like a budget and and a professional, uh, or is it? it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, did, how did you raise the money uh, for this? Um, sorry. How did you raise the money for it? Well, we're we're still in that process. Actually, it's okay. through a website called SeedandSpark.com. Um, it's a crowdfunding website, and. Uh, yeah, if you just go to seedandspark.com and search for last caller, it'll come up. Seed but, and Spark. Uh, so this yeah, is like a GoFundMe or a Kickstart. This is called Seed and Start. Seed and Spark. Seedandspark.com. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, I mean we're we're all really really excited about it. We've been putting a ton of work into it. Um we've got union actors and stuff on it as well, which is great access to a ton of fantastic equipment so it's it's definitely going to be a a professional short film and once it's completed um we definitely have plans of submitting it to film festivals and uh getting it out to as many people as possible so aside from the uh, the you know the the impetus for this being the uh, the famous call from area 51 to coast to coast um uh which is a program i i guest host on uh, several times a month what sure. uh, what is give us the sort of the synopsis of the uh, of the film? So the the host of the show is named Anthony, and he's at a point in his career where he's he's received just tons and tons of phone calls that are just repetitive or you know saying the same stories over and over. And at one point, you know, the paranormal and and all of this was something he was very very passionate about, and it's what got him out of bed in the morning. And he's he's burnt out, um, so he's yeah he just is not passionate about it at all anymore. He's kind of phoning it in, no pun intended, as they say. What's that? Sir? He's kind of phoning it in at this point in his career. Exactly, exactly. Right. Um, and you know, until this night, until he receives this phone call, which he's initially skeptical of, and then uh, without giving away too much of of the plot, yeah, uh, events start to unfold and. Uh, a lot of uh, terrifying things happen at the station that uh, really changes perspective on a lot of stuff that he's become skeptical about. It sounds like a great premise. Uh, and uh, again, it's uh, the, the film is called The Last Call, Caller, The Last Caller. You are the last caller, last caller. You're the director, Jared, is that right? I am, yep. Okay, and uh, if uh, people want to find out more, they go to the the crowdfunding website. Give us that again. Yes, seedandspark.com. Seedandspark.com, and then they just search for 
last caller. Well, good luck to you, and I, I can't wait to check this out. Thank you very much. Appreciate All right, it. Jared, uh, the director of a student film called Last Caller, uh, which is uh, about a a talk show host, not dissimilar to yours truly, but uh, it's not based on this particular program. Uh, however, I look forward to seeing that. All right, uh, we are at the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we're going to dial back to December 2014 and uh, my conversation with the late Bruce McBurney, inventor and uh, manufacturer of colloidal silver and distributor of a pamphlet, perhaps a very dangerous pamphlet, the 100 mile per gallon engine. We lost Bruce a couple of weeks ago. This is our little tribute to uh, Mr. McBurney coming up next right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And we're back with Bruce McBurney. How did you get into this, Bruce? How did you uh, start uh, researching the super fuel injection system? And, and, and um, I know that you, you, you invent a lot of uh, different uh, things, but how did you get into this area specifically? Well, I'd heard of this story from about Tom Ogle years ago. I was working electrical motor mechanic in a shop, and a guy from Scotland got his paper from back home. Well, it was in his paper. It was in the Hamilton Spec paper, but it wasn't in the Standard or the Niagara Falls paper. But then years later, I was out shopping with the wife, and I see this Farmer's Almanac magazine, so I'm looking through it, and there's an ad for this book, Secrets of the 200-mile-per-gallon carburetor. Well, this is a farmer's almanac. It's not the um, rag sheet, tabloid, you know, whatever they call them, that'll print anything. The farmer's almanac's been around for 100 years. I thought it had integrity. So I bought the book, and it listed, and it showed all these patents on these vapor carburetors, and I just wanted to find out the truth, so I just started building and playing with it myself. I've been fixing and playing with things since I was a kid, uh, and, you know, I'm... When I was 16 years old, I did TV service calls on my own, and I'd just been fixing stuff, and I just wanted to find out, so I started building things, and I thought it was just a vapor carburetor. And you ask 100 mechanics what the boiling point of gasoline is, and they don't have a clue. Well, this is to boil that gasoline. Well, they, you know, but uh, then you do all this. I did all the research trying to find out the boiling point. And that's when I started understanding the idea of breaking it down. Is it possible, rather than 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 heating it and creating a vapor, could you not? Uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking back to Stanley Meyer's water engine, and, and uh, a number of people have tried to recreate that. But uh, I spoke to an electrician, an electrical engineer, rather, uh, down in uh, Long Island, who was working on his version of Stanley Meyer's water engine, and he was essentially cracking these water molecules with a, uh, a some sort of a electronic waveform, like a, I believe he called it a square pattern or something. Yeah, it was a square wave pattern. It was a frequency, hitting the resonant frequency. Right. Could like, you do it that way? No. Uh, basically, uh, mine was uh, just a fuel cracking system using the heat and, and, and taking the vaporized gasoline and water. Right. And Isn't that volatile, though, and dangerous? Uh, well, I, I did all mine very safely. I mean, I was running at seven pounds, but before I did it, I heated it up as hot as it would go, and I pressure tested it at 100 pounds with an air compressor. So then I was running it with seven pounds of fuel. So, you know, I mean, it was, you know, quite a heavy-duty unit. I do things quite safe, but I had fire extinguishers and everything around. But, yeah, there was an element of danger, and then I realized that, you know, I, I just didn't have the brains or the financing to take it any further than what I did. I knew that it was possible, and I thought, well, if I put a book together, your mother-in-law can read and understand that eventually I, you know, would get some help. 
And I also knew that this had been suppressed before, so I wanted to make a little bit of an insurance policy that, you know, the information was out there at least, you know? What, what, whatever happened to uh, this Ogle gentleman uh, that's written about in uh, um, various uh, newspapers? About a year after his run, he turned down the money from the oil companies. They said he came out of a bar and he got shot, and that didn't kill him. A couple, three months later, they found him dead in the middle of um, the desert, and they called it a suicide. It was a drugs and alcohol overdose. Um, And I actually sold one of my books to went to high school with Tom, because, you know, this guy was in El Paso, and he grew up with Tom in high school, and then years later he was on the Internet, and he found all my information. So he got a book, and we were talking, and he says, yeah, Tom was very straight. He didn't do drugs. In fact, one of the magazine articles, the, inv- the reporter said, what do you attribute your inventing skills to? And Tom replied, the fact that I practice kung fu and I won't even take an aspirin. Ah, this is Tom Ogle we're talking about. Yeah, Tom Ogle. But they say he died of a drug and alcohol overdose. So he was suicided. Yeah, suicided. That's a good term for it. And and you said Big Oil approached him. How much did they offer him? Uh, according to the newspaper article, it was $25 million. 20, and he turned it down. Yeah. Well, I have a friend right now that's sitting in a Montana jail, and his website's Gadget Man Groove, Ron Hatton. He t- turned down $40 million last year, and they put drugs on him, and he's been in jail ever since uh, February. But was he was he trying to yeah, he's patent the same type of device? Well, he, he did get a patent on it. It's, it's a different thing, and it's not the 100 mile per gallon. It's just a small modification they make to the carburetor throttle body. If you go to GadgetManGroove.com or on YouTube, he's got GadgetManGlobal is his handle, and he's got all kinds of testimonials, people that have gotten 50% and doubled their gas mileage. You know, some cars it don't work on, and some cars it works really great on. It's kind of a, it depends on your intake manifold. But, um, yeah, the guy was out there for three, four years, and he was teaching other people how to do it, and they just pulled the rug right well, rug right on from him and he's not the first it was another guy and well he just passed away last year the alan cagiano story he had a website get 113 to 138 and miles per gallon miles per gallon he was driving a dodge coronet station wagon and uh, they framed him for drugs he proved the drugs weren't his but they got him on a weapons charge he did 10 years in jail can i uh, just uh, read there's a um, a letter here from a chemistry professor at the at Brock University. Can I just? Yeah, that's the professor that I worked with. But that letter was written after the fact. He was threatened only because I kept pestered him, and the letter is very wimpy for what he knew. Okay, he, let me just read it here. Okay. This is from Brock University. It's on Brock University letterhead. To whom it may concern, Mr. John Bruce McBurney of Niagara Falls, Ontario, has worked alone for a m- number of years to design, develop, and test a novel automobile carburetor. In this carburetor, gasoline aerosol produced conventionally is converted to gasoline vapor with the the use of heat generated in the operation of the automobile engine. The gasoline vapor is mixed with water vapor and passed through a heated iron catalyst bed for conversion into lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide. The lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide serve as the fuel within the automobile engine. In his test vehicle, Mr. McBurney was able able at will to switch from normal operation to operation of the vehicle with hydrocarbon and carbon monoxide fuel. It goes on and on and on. And then it it says, 
I have helped Mr. McBurney and will continue to help him scientifically, technologically, and financially because of the great benefits that his invention, if it is successful, will bring to society which is currently plagued by inefficiency and serious pollution. Signed, E.A. Cherniak, Professor of Physical Chemistry, and that's dated June 16, 1989. That's Brock University. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this was after, he, I mean, he wrote this letter, but th- this was after he told you, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the health of my family. Yeah, so when he says, I'm worried about my family, I says, oh, I'm sorry, Professor, you've got to look after your family. But, you know, uh, we've done a lot of research. You know, and then I left him alone. Then I called him back months later, see how things were going, and, you know, kind of getting the bums shuffle. And I said to him, well, okay, I understand you don't want to work it, but we did a lot of work. Can I get you to do a letter of, rec- you know, just to say what we did? Because, we see, we, he says it should be given the opportunity. We had analyzed through gas chromatograph and ultraviolet spectrum analysis proving I was making natural gas. And when, he said, when we had both of them done, he said, this is scientific proof. You're on to something. We'll have no problem getting you a $100,000 research grant. Well, then after they threatened it, I kept calling them back. Oh, could we get just get a letter? You know, and I'm a persistent little fellow. So I kept calling them back. And so he says, well, I guess I, guess I could do something. Well, the test was done in December of 87. It wasn't until June of 89 the letter was written. I didn't get the letter till the fall of 89. And in the meantime, all this time, I got screwed around by the patent office because when I filed the patent in November of 87, uh, they said, oh, you've got two years under a caveat to file your patent. Well, I, you know, I got all depressed because I no, couldn't get anywhere. It was hitting your wall, head against a brick wall. Right, right. So it was finally a year and a half later. I go, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and pursue the patent. And they come back and they says, oh, sorry, we changed the law. And you only had one year. But at the time I filed it, I had two years. They changed the law. They never told me the law. And then I went up and I appealed it, drove all the way to Ottawa, appealed it. I went in with a bunch of books and a stack of patents. And the, pat- the guys come in and they're looking at all my stuff. And it turns out they're the guys on the tribunal. I present my information. They go, oh, well, you've got a very solid case. We'll give you our decision in two weeks. Two weeks later, sorry, nope, can't do it. Screw you. Uh, you have the option of going and filing to the Supreme Court. Well, I didn't have the kind of money to go to the Supreme Court. Now, if you're a criminal, you can get all kinds of money from legal aid. But if you're a homeowner, you can't get any money without them putting a lien on your house. So where are you at with this now, Bruce? Have you pretty much given up on this? Or oh, No, I, I just keep saying one of these days I'm going to find people that care and I'm going to help uh, get the financing out. And I've got a lot of other people fired into this stuff. And uh, the word's getting out. People are realizing, you know, that technology and things can change. And could they just, could I take a, a, I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, take a brand new car and have this this uh, adjustment made because I'd, I guess I'd probably, uh, you know, void no, the warranty. I don't, don't want to work on a brand new one. No. I always, I would go and buy a, a junker and sure. play with it. exactly. Know? I mean, could anyone buy a junker, take it to a garage, hand them your secret no. super high mileage report and have it made? No. Why not? Because most, well, that was the reason why I wrote the book. It's like I can explain to you how to build a refrigerator, but if they shot the guy who invented the refrigerator years ago and we were all using ice boxes, you'd spend thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars building that refrigerator that would break down in three months. But because it's mass-produced, you can go and buy one for five hundred bucks and it'll run ten or fifteen years. Right. 
That's the idea. You need you need these to be mass produced. Otherwise, it's not economically feasible. Well, who's going to spend ten thousand dollars on a carburetor with all the prototyping and everything to save five thousand dollars worth of fuel? Right. That's what it would cost. Yeah. Well, I I I I don't know what it would cost in the final thing. I know when I did my van, I spent a few thousand dollars in about three months of my time. And I just had, you know, a piece of crap like the Wright brothers. But it did prove the point, and I did know now that, hey, this can be done. But I, And at the time, I thought it was a control issue. I was thinking you need a computer control, and I didn't have the technology and, or, you know, even the price for what a computer was back then. Now things are changed. You can get a PLC for 250 bucks to, you know, do something like this if you had a decent programmer. But I can't afford that. I've just basically, uh, you know, I... Is 100 miles to the gallon, is that, is that about the upper limit? Let, let's say you were to put one of these on, a, let's say, a smart car. Could you get 200 miles to the gallon? Oh, no, a smart car would basically get uh, about 350. 350 miles to the gallon. Yeah. Well, in 1936, there was a guy in Winnipeg doing 200 miles per gallon. And uh, there's an article, uh, oh, what it was, I'm trying to remember the year, 1973, I think it was, the Shell Mileage Marathon car went 369 miles per gallon in a 2,500-pound car. Oh, my. Yeah, the, 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 the mileage record is something around 8,000 miles per gallon. And I'm guessing that all of the automakers know that this is possible, and uh, they're essentially... Yeah, you well, know, they're not going to oh, budge they're because by the oil companies and the drug companies and the same people and the bankers and it's all controlled with the oil and this I have one CD-ROM that a fellow put together because he went through my website and in my website there's an article called Research for the Scholarly that this other fellow wrote and he couldn't get it published. Well, it was explaining the 100 mile per gallon and it lists 569 different patented fuel saving systems. Now, many of them are bought up by the oil companies. Now, if it doesn't work, why would you patent it? On average, it takes one year salary, it don't matter 1919 or 1969, whatever the average one-year salary is about right. what a patent costs. Precisely. Listen, Bruce, we're, we're out of time, but we've, we've got to talk about this again very, in, in the time that remains, very quickly. How do people get a copy of the Secret Super High Mileage Report? Go to my website, HiMacResearch.com, or you can call me. My phone number is 905-358-8541. I just take the time. I explain it to anybody that calls. I just want the truth to know. I get people fired up. They're out there telling other people, and one okay. of these days, this has got to get out there. All right. Well, we'll do our part as well, and we'll have you back on. Thank you so much for this, Bruce. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I got a lot of other things I've learned uh, just because I shared that. Don't that we, we will talk. <laughs> Rest assured, we will talk. Bruce All McBurney. Right. Uh, we will not talk uh, because Bruce McBurney has passed from this earth. April 26th, at the age of 60, suddenly in his home in Niagara Falls, Canada. Now, I am not here to tell you that Bruce McBurney died as a result of foul play. I have no indication of that. Uh, I, it is interesting, however, that he mentioned that he, um, as a Christian, had no fear of death. He'd wake up in heaven. Uh, there's nothing anyone could do to him. But the technology, this super carburetor, potentially very disruptive technology, 
and a gentleman that was developing the same technology in the 1970s did die under mysterious circumstances in Texas. Again, not saying anything foul or anything untowards happened to Bruce McBurney when he passed away. I have no, no idea what he died from. Uh, however, if you go to the website, richardserrett.com, and at the uh, top you'll see the slide carousel there once again, uh, you will see a, an in-memoriam slide for Bruce, and if you click on that, that'll take you to his uh, obituary. Uh, his website, HiMacResearch.com, is still up, and it's online. So uh, I, I guess as a further tribute to Bruce, you could, uh, you could go to their website and, and find out more about his work and uh, his 100-mile-per-gallon engine. And uh, I'll leave it for you to decide whether he was onto something or not. But this, ultimately, I guess, aside from his, uh, his family that he leaves, this will be his legacy. Bruce McBurney, eternal be your memory. Uh, once again, if you go up to uh, the website, richardserrett.com, another uh, story that um, Elbert the intern has posted there, I thought I would share with you just before we dim the lights here and say goodnight. DARPA. You're familiar with DARPA? No doubt. Uh, they, that's the U.S. Defense Research Projects Agency. The headline here, DARPA cortical modem connects brain directly to computer for electronic telepathy and telekinesis. A brain-computer interface, interface has been developed by DARPA that is capable of laying a heads-up display over a user's natural vision. The cortical modem, as it's called, also holds the potential to cure sight loss and enable electronic telepathy and telekinesis, according to noted futurist Peter Rothman, writing for H Plus magazine. While still a long way from production, the direct neural interface chip would be shaped like a coin around one centimeter wide and could conceivably cost as little as ten dollars. An outlined or as outlined at the Biology is Technology Conference in Silicon Valley last week, the interface provides a direct link between the brain and an external device or software through manipulation of the visual cortex. Philip Elvilda, chief of DARPA's Biological Technologies, told the conference how the device could replace all virtual reality glasses, such as the Oculus Rift, by bypassing the visual sensory system entirely. The project builds on the work of Carl Dyseroth in the field of optogenetics, according to H Plus Magazine, which was in attendance at the California conference. DARPA has led the way in a number of futurist and transhumanist projects, including a tiny implant that assists the body's organs in healing themselves when injured. Well, the, his, uh, the future is now, ladies and gentlemen. Let me repeat that headline. DARPA cortical modem connects brain directly to computer for electronic telepathy and telekinesis. I'll leave you to chew on that overnight. My thanks to Tim Spreen. Eric and Albert, the interns, all of you for listening. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed and nothing that I say in the dark. Speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.